is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I want to begin with a story. I'm indebted to John MacArthur for this story, but I want to just tell you a little story as we begin. Eli Cohen was born in 1924 in the Jewish quarter of Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, He was the son of a Jewish silk tie maker. He was born in Egypt. He worked hard to obtain an education. He uh, excelled uh, as a student, became fluent in many languages. War came uh, to Egypt in the in the 1940s and uh, soon Cohen found himself drawn to political causes and became involved with the Egyptian branch of the Mossad Aliyah Bet, an organization that smuggled immigrating Jews past British officials. In the ensuing years, Cohen supported many Israeli causes and developed an expertise in espionage. To the Mossad, which is the Israeli intelligence agency, Cohen became an invaluable man, for during the course of his covert activities in support of Israel, he maintained his outstanding credentials as an Egyptian. He was a perfect spy. In 1961, the Mossad sent uh, Cohen to Damascus, Syria, to pose as a wealthy Arab businessman with holdings in Buenos Aires, Argentina. He quickly engaged himself in the import-export business in Damascus, securing an apartment in the wealthiest sector of the city, and then began giving large sums of money to Syrian politicians to buy his way into the elite. In turn, they gave him entree into the high political social circles. He became a regular guest at the presidential palace parties and became a personal confidant to many government leaders. It was not unusual for him to be taken on high-level briefings at the Syrian-Israeli border. In those days, Israeli, uh, Israel was dependent on the pipelines uh, in Galilee for the water supply, but those pipelines passed to the Golan Heights and they were under Syrian control. Cohen discovered that the Syrians were preparing to implement a plan to cut off the water to supply the water supply to Israel. And during a visit to the Syrian frontier, Cohen convinced President Al-Haviz to plant eucalyptus trees at the major military installations all around the Golan Heights. He said the trees would provide good cover and shield the installations from the Israeli air surveillance while Syria proceeded to carry out its plan. Eli Cohen's life of espionage was uncovered in 1965. The Arabs found out he was a Jewish spy, and he was hanged in the central town square in Damascus. A few months later, during the famous Six-Day War, Israeli fighter pilots had very little trouble knocking out all of Syrian targets in the Golan Heights. They were all marked with eucalyptus trees surrounding them. The Golan Heights today are controlled by Israel because of an imposter who infiltrated the Syrian society to work for their defeat and their destruction. His approach poses one of them and then lead them into tragedy. Having just told his readers that we should believe in Jesus and we should follow Jesus and we should grow in Jesus because Jesus confirmed the Old Testament prophecies concerning himself, Peter now feels compelled to warn them that, yes, there are true prophets of old who Jesus fulfilled their writings, but there are also false prophets, people who purport to speak for God but don't actually speak for God. They're kind of like Cohen, pretending to be one thing but are indeed another. 
So what is a false prophet? What, what do we know about them? How do we recognize them? Well, this second chapter is going to help us. Now, Peter doesn't lay out his text in sequential order, meaning that we're just, we can't really go verse by verse by verse because we'll end up tripping back over some of the same things that he's already said. So what I'm going to do with the text, all 22 verses, is I'm going to share with you five observations that we can make in answer to the questions I just posed. Again, those questions were like, you know, what is a false prophet? What, what do we know about them? How do we recognize them? Well, I'm going to give you five observations that Peter makes that hopefully will help us in, in all of those areas. So let's dive in. Here's the, first, here's the first observation that I'm going to make. A false prophet teaches something differ, different than the apostles' teaching or than what the apostles taught. So chapter 2, verse 1, there were indeed false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Let's start with the definition of the word prophet. The English word prophet is a, really a transliteration of the Greek word prophetes, which means one who speaks forth or one who uh, is an advocate. Prophets were also called seers, S-E-E-R-S. Uh, -E -E a seer was sort of like a, a synonym for prophet because prophets, these who spoke forth for God, would speak for spiritual insight. And they would also, at times, have the ability to foresee things in the future. In the Bible, a prophet really had two roles. He was teaching God's truth, but he was also revealing God's truth. He would declare God's truth on, on contemporary issues, but he would often sometimes speak to how those contemporary issues might affect the future. He preached, Isaiah would be a great example of this. He preached against the corruption of his day in chapter 1. In chapter 25, he gives us a vision of what God's going to do in the future with his with his people. Grand vision, chapters 25, 20, 24, 25, 26. You should read those chapters. They're wonderful. It's where he talks about death being abolished and how we're going to have a great feast together with, with God. But the main descriptor of a prophet, I think, is that he is one who spoke for God. And, and so Peter says to them, listen, you need to understand that not everybody who claims to speak for God really speaks for God. He says, from the beginning, this is how it's been. From the very beginning, people have claimed to speak for God, but really haven't. And, and so if we go back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament is filled with stories of people who claim to pre speak for God, but didn't. For instance, here's just one, Micaiah. He was a prophet during the days of Ahab. And Ahab, the king in the north, and Jehoshaphat in the south, they're going to fight a battle together. But Jehosh Jehoshaphat wants to hear from a prophet from God. Well, Ahab brings in all these other prophets who all prophesy good stuff. He says, man, isn't there one prophet for Jehovah here? He says, yeah, there is this one guy named Micaiah. Here's, here's the quote from 1 Kings 22.8. There is one more Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good for me. He's always something, always something bad. So he would, you know, Ahab wanted prophets who were going to say what he wanted them to say, and they weren't abound Jeremiah, Isaiah, Elijah all thought they were alone. Elijah, I mean, Isaiah, no, Elijah was the one who said, man, I, I alone am left. But Jeremiah and Isaiah really at times, they were the only prophet that spoke for God. So it kind of seems like Satan has always had a counterfeit for whatever God does. So if God's got prophets, Satan's going to have his own prophets who are not really going to speak for God, even though they claim to speak for God. It was no different in Peter's day. 
Now, Peter said that these false prophets or these false teachers, he said, they would come bringing destructive heresies. Now, the word heresy really isn't a bad word in itself, okay? It does, it's not a negative word. It just simply means a body of teaching or a system of belief. And so what Peter is doing is he's juxtaposing his teaching against the teaching of these other prophets whom he calls, or teachers whom he calls false teachers. So, so Peter is basically saying they're bringing forth a teaching that's contrary to mine and the other apostles, and, and it's a destructive teaching. So that's what a heresy was. A heresy became a teaching that was something different than what Peter taught or what the apostles taught. We would say that Peter's teaching is, or the apostles' teaching is capsulated for us in the scriptures. So they're preaching something or teaching something different than the scriptures. Now he tells us two things about their teaching. Look at the text with me. First of all, he says their teaching is destructive. He said they're going to bring forth destructive heresies or destructive teachings. He doesn't say how they destroy, but but I think he might have meant they're going to destroy the faith and practice of those who follow them. In other words, they're going to be destructive to men and women who listen to them. It's going to destroy their faith. Whereas God's teaching should be good, uplifting, and building up of the church, their teaching is not going to be that. The second thing he says about their teaching is that it's going to deny Jesus who bought them. And again, Peter doesn't elaborate. He just makes that statement. Their teaching is destructive, and it's going to deny Jesus who bought them. Now, John the Apostle, in his teachings, in his second letter, chapter 2, verse 7, says this, Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Following the death and resurrection of Jesus, there was a group of men who began to teach that Jesus really wasn't human, that he was really sort of like a a hologram or that he was a spiritual being and not a real human like us, where we believe Jesus became one of us. They were denying his humanity. And they also denied that he even suffered. Uh, They, you know, they had different views of he wasn't really suffering on the cross. I think Peter might have had them in mind when he says they are men who deny the master who bought them. So they're teaching things like this. Now, before I move on to the next observation, I I want to tell you about a question that I've considered quite a bit this week. And uh, this is a question that I actually got on the phone and I asked several of my friends, you know, and, uh, and even around here, I asked some of my friends, what do you think about this question? Here's my question. Is a man or a woman a false prophet or a false teacher merely because they teach something that's wrong and not true? So if you're tracking with me, okay, I've just told you that my observation is Peter says that these false, there's going to be false teachers and they're going to teach a heresy. They're going to teach a teaching that's contrary to Peter's and contrary to the apostles' teaching. My question that I pondered quite a bit this week is, okay, if someone is teaching something that is wrong, are they a, uh, a false uh, false teacher. Let me illustrate. We're a Baptist church. We believe in credo baptism. We believe that baptism is is a is a testimony that we make to our faith in Jesus. So baptism comes after uh, our faith. There's a good portion of the body of Christ that disagrees with us. They believe that baptism really should be administered to children for the first you know couple almost couple thousand fifteen hundred years of the church. 
The church believed that we needed to baptize children to wash away Adam and Eve's sin, original sin in their lives. So we had to baptize them to do that. And still today, though people don't really affirm that anymore, they still believe that we need to baptize children because there are children. So here's my question. If they're right and we're wrong, are we false teachers and false prophets? Or if we're right and they're wrong, are they false prophets? Are, are, are the leaders of every Presbyterian church in our community, are they false prophets and false teachers? That's a question I seriously pondered this week. Here's another, here's another example, for instance. You know, many of us in the body of Christ are Calvinist. We, we believe a certain... We believe certain things about salvation. There's quite a few of us that don't agree with that. So are non-Calvinists false prophets and false teachers when they teach something contrary to what Calvinists believe? Or the other way around, are Calvinists false teachers and false prophets because they teach something that I believe is wrong? So you got an answer to my question? Uh, I, I think I, uh, here's my answer. I don't think so. I don't think so. A false prophet was one, and and as I understand what Peter's saying here, a false prophet is not one who gets the apostles' teaching wrong, but rather one who rejects the apostles' teaching in order to teach something different. So see if you can follow that logic. Uh, A false teacher is not someone who is doing his best to understand the apostles' teaching and getting it wrong, but rather a false teacher is someone who rejects the apostles' teaching and teaches something contrary to what the apostles, or what they believe the apostles taught. Now, where do we find the apostles' teaching? We find the apostles' teaching encapsulated for us in our Bible. So what you have before you in your Bible is, is the apostles' teaching written down for us. The problem for us is that we live two millennia after they wrote, 2,000 years context has changed. Let's just go back. Let's go back 50 years. And I were to say, uh, Joe, you're a gay man, right? Everybody would have said, oh, Joe's a happy fellow, right? That's what they would have said. If I say that today, people are going to have a very different idea of what that means. Words change, right? So you have to know the context when people are writing. So if they use that word back 50 years ago, they don't mean what it means today, right? So my point is, it, it really is imperative that we go back and, and, and seek to understand context in which the Bible was written, and what words actually meant when, when apostles used them, and they were written down uh, for us. But here's the point. The apostles' teaching is our standard of what is true. The Bible is our standard of what is right and what is true. A few weeks ago, I told you that when in John 17, when Jesus said to his disciples, when the Spirit of God comes, he is leading you into all truth. I told you that I felt like, some of you have pushed back, and that's fine. Maybe I'm not right. But I told you, I really felt like that was a promise to them that when they wrote down the Word of God, they were going to write down the true, perfect Word of God so that we would have a Bible that's without error that we would have a Bible that we could trust. And, and so I believe that was a promise to them and to us that we would have a standard of teaching the Word of God by which we should measure all teaching, okay? And so an, a false teacher is someone who comes along and says, yep, that's what the apostles taught, but they were wrong. Here's, here's what we need. We need to reject that. And what are some things that people say, false teachers say today? How do they reject 
the apostles teaching, they say, well, we've become smarter. We become culturally relevant now. We, and so we reject a bunch of things that they say because culture has changed. You and I would recognize a false teacher by teaching something contrary to them to what the apostles clearly taught. Here's my second observation. These false prophets and teachers will impact many people. Look at verse uh, 2. Many will follow their depraved ways, and the way of truth will be maligned because of them. They're going to impact a lot of people, and they're going to impact them in two ways. First, they're going to impact them because many people are going to follow them into their sinfulness and wickedness. It's amazing, isn't it, how easy it is for people to follow what is false and not true. Crowds and masses fall in line behind people who are teaching something contrary to the apostles' teaching. Now, I'm not talking about getting it wrong. I'm talking about they're denying what the apostles said, and people fall behind and begin to follow uh, in that. Uh, I'm not sure why that is. Is it because is it because the false teachers are saying that people... Uh, like hearing, or is that the false teachers are teaching what the people want to hear? The Apostle Paul said there's going to come a day when people won't tolerate the Apostles' teaching, but they're going to get people who are going to tickle their ears. And I think what that means is they've got people that are going to teach what they want to hear. They're going to teach the things that make people feel good on the inside. And that's why so many churches and Bible teachers today, they're leaving out the hard parts. They're abandoning what God says about sin. And uh, they want people to follow them. So they're removing the hard teachings of Jesus. And they're actually appealing to our natural desires. The second thing about, uh, about this observation, about how it will impact people, is it's going to impact true Christians and true followers of Jesus. And we're going to be slandered and disparaged. That's what he says uh, concerning them. In other words, when you and I continue to teach what the scripture teaches. And the false teacher comes along and says, yeah, the scripture teaches that sexuality is to be observed within the context of marriage and homosexuality is wrong and trans transgenderism isn't really true and the killing of the unborn is wrong. And so when the false teachers come along and say all those things were cultural and those are not true anymore, transgenderism is true, homosexuality is good, killing the unborn is a, is a woman's right, when they come along and we stand back and we say, nope, the scripture teaches the opposite of that. The scripture teaches and we go against the culture. Then here's what's going to happen. As a result of those false teachers claiming to represent God, those of us who hold to the apostles' truth, we will be slandered as being unloving, unkind, and cruel, and not listening to people and not caring about people when it's just the opposite. Those of us who hold to the word of God, we love people just as much as, as other folks. We're, we're actually, I believe, trying to say, listen, if we love you, we're going to tell you what God says is actually really true. But we're going to be slandered. We're going to be slandered if we hold to the truth. Here's my third observation. False prophets and teachers are marked by their character. Now, Peter points out several character marks of the false prophet that stand out. First, he says they're going to be compelled by their greed. Look at verse 3. They will exploit you in their greed with made-up stories. Verse 14. They have hearts trained in greed, children under a curse. They have gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam, the son of uh, Peor. 
or Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness, but received a rebuke for his lawlessness. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice, restraining the prophet's madness. Peter says that false teachers are prompted by greed. They're motivated by, by a desire for monetary gain. That's what pushes and motivates them. He says they fall into Balaam's error. And Balaam in the Old Testament was a prophet that God said, don't go with that king who wanted him to come and prophesy against Israel. But he decided he'd go along for the king's money and just simply wouldn't prophesy against the people. And remember, God stopped him in his past with a donkey that, that spoke to him. Peter says they're following after Balaam's problem. They're, they're going after greed. Their greed compels them in what they do. They claim to follow the one who says, hey, who said more than one occasion, give away all your wealth. They follow the one whose very presence led another guy to give away much of his wealth, if not most of it. They follow a guy who said, I don't even have a place to lay my head down, right? They follow that kind of guy, and yet their lives are characterized by their greed. I don't know if I should do this or not, but I'm just going gonna, gonna to do it. Maybe it's in your mind. And I, the first thought I had was our television prosperity preachers of today, men and women whose greed is just absolutely evident for all to see. They live opulent lives and gross extravagance, million-dollar homes, owning more than one million-dollar homes, more than one home at millions of dollars, flying in, in, in planes that cost millions of dollars and millions of dollars to operate. They live lives of overindulgence. And I believe that's what he's saying. And again, let me, let me, let me quickly say this. Man, I don't know anybody's heart. I mean, Kenneth Copeland has a fortune of $760 million personally. T.D. Jakes, $150 million. Pat Robertson, $100 million. Benny Hinn, $42 million. Joel Olstein, $40 million. Creflo Dollar, $27 million. Rick Warren, $25 million. I do not know anybody's heart. We, we don't know their hearts. We've got to be careful how we judge hearts, right? Um, but it's easy to see that with so much money in my personal account, I, have be, I can become encumbered with materialism. And if I'm not careful, what drives me becomes my greed. That's what he says about their character. Not necessarily about these men, but about, uh, but about the false prophets of his day. They're driven by greed. Secondly, their character. They're driven and motivated by their lust. What I mean here is they use their position of power as teachers to satiate sensual sexual desires. Look at verse 10 especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh. That's talking about, I'm just talking about immoral sexual desires. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery that never stop looking for sin. They seduce unstable people. Verse 18, for by uttering boastful empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires the debauchery and debauchery, people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They use their position to seduce people who've only recently escaped from, from sin there in their own lives. They're using their position of authority for, for sexual gain. And of course, what came to my mind probably comes to your mind is what breaks so many of our hearts is Ravi Zacharias, you know, the great apologist. It turns out he's using his position to seduce women around the world, using his money to, to bring, about, bring about this stuff. Just this past week, I learned that Paul Pressler has been accused by numerous men of sexually abusing them as young boys. It seems Judge Pressler was a homosexual predator. And some of you may not know who Judge Pressler was. 
Maybe some of you do, but Judge Pressler was one of two men who were really the architects and, and a driving force behind the Southern Baptist resurgency to biblical authority. He, along with a man named Paige Patterson, and, and, and I mean, how, how much of this is true, I don't know. I just, I'm just reporting the fact he's been accused by numerous men. And I also heard that Paige Patterson knew about that. Whether that's true or not, I don't know for sure. But here's my point. Here's two men who taught the truth. Here's two men that are not false teachers because they're teaching a heresy, a different teaching. They're teaching what evangelical Bible-believing teachers believe and preach, and yet they're being motivated by their wrong sexual desire. Their lives are characterized as false teachers, even though they spoke truth. So it looks like false teachers and false prophets can, it's not just what they teach, but it's their character as well. Here's the third thing about their character, Peter says, they're arrogant and proud. And again, I'm sure not every, every false teacher is, is the same amount in any one of these character issues, but they're, they're often arrogant and proud. Verse 10, they despise authority, bold, arrogant people. They are not afraid to slander the glorious ones. However, angels who are great in might and power do not bring a slanderous charge against other angels or other glorious ones before the Lord. But these people, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, slander what they do not understand in their destruction, they too will be destroyed. Verse 18, Peter says, they utter boastful but empty words. So false prophets are, are characterized by the opposite of a humble, others-focused leader. They despise authority. So if you want to recognize a false teacher by his character or her character, see whether they're driven by their own selfishness. If they're operating on their own fallen and sinful instincts. Peter says they're like irrational animals. And as an example, he gives, he gives an example of how they'll rebuke demons and angels and whatever. And he says, but you know what? Angels don't even do that. Now I'm telling you, that's really way over my pay grade. I don't really know all that Peter, Peter doesn't elaborate on that. Jude, remember how there's a connection between Jude and 2 Peter? Remember that? All right, here's what Jude, here's what Jude adds in verse 9. And I think it helps us with what Peter just said. He says, But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And so, and so Jude is saying, you know, these false teachers will stand up and in their own name rebuke angelic personages. And he says, but that's not even what angels do. Angels will appeal to the Lord to rebuke them. I mean, because they recognize uh, their level of authority. Here's Peter's point. False teachers are often arrogant and prideful, and they see themselves above everyone, including even angels. Now, I think I told you this not too long ago, but I've been listening to a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Mars Hill was a megachurch out in uh, Washington State. I'd recommend the podcast. It gets a little long, a little too many details. But uh, it's about a megachurch that grew to be one of the biggest churches in our, in our country, maybe even in the world. But it almost fell overnight. But here's the thing I want to tell you. What struck me, what struck me as I've listened to this podcast is the pride and arrogance of the lead pastor's life. His name is Mark Driscoll. Some of y'all may have listened to him. Maybe you've read his stuff and watched him online. He's the gifted speaker. 
But as, I, as you listen to the podcast and it kind of chronicles Mark's life, what you find out is that Mark went from maybe being humble at the beginning to there, there's just absolutely no one who can speak into his life. No one who can say anything to him. He sets himself up really as God, little g, in the life of his church, but really sets himself up as God overall in his own life. Number four, and I'm going to come back to that podcast. Number four, they're deceivers, verse 13. They consider it a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight. They are spots and blemishes delighting in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have no qualms with openly indulging in drunken parties. They delight in deceiving you while they're dining at your table. Their whole life is about deception. Verse 17, these people are springs without water, mist driven by a storm. Here's what he means. They're fake. You know, if you go to a spring, you want to find water. But he says they're springs without water. They, they appear to be one thing, but they're, they're just they're deceiving you. They're not what they claim to be. He said they're mist driven by a storm. They're like a storm when you need rain, but you don't get any rain. All you get is that little mist that doesn't do anything. In verse 19, Peter says they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. They promise spiritual freedom, but what they deliver is enslavement to sin because they themselves are enslaved to sin. Mark Driscoll, you know, I got a little bit of check about using Mark as an illustration, but it's, it's a good illustration. Mark Driscoll resigned from Mars Hill and went to Phoenix and started Trinity Church. And now, how many years later, the same things are happening at Trinity Church that happened at Mars Hill Church. Why? Because Mark is still Mark. Mark is still enslaved where he is. So here's my three observations so far. False prophets teach something different than the apostles taught. Number two, the false prophets and teachers will impact many people, both the saved and the unsaved. False prophets and teachers are marked by their character. Here's number four. False prophets and teachers are often men and women who once truly followed Jesus. At the end of the chapter, verse 20, Paul, Peter says this, For if having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled to these things and defeated, the last state is worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a washed sow returns to wallowing in the mud. Now, these last verses say that they imply that the false teacher would have been better off if he just had never come to faith, if, he'd never, if he had never started well. He says the worst state, having fallen from that, it's worse now for them. And, uh, you know, it could have been worse. Maybe it's going to be worse for them because there's going to be a stricter judgment on Judgment Day. There's, there's going to be something associated with, with what they've done. I think that's sort of the implication. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's that they wouldn't have led other people astray and other people wouldn't have, wouldn't have fallen away if it wasn't for them falling away themselves. E- either way, Peter says this, they're like a, do- a dog that returns and eats its vomit. And I know that's really gross, but if you've had a dog, you know that's true. They'll throw up and then a little while later, they'll come back and eat it again and you'll be gagging, Right. And you'll be gagging. He says, that's, they're like that. They once escaped the corruption 
of sin in their life and began to follow Jesus and things were different, but now they've returned back again. So a lot of false teachers, maybe not all of them, but a lot of false teachers were men who started well and then returned to where they used to be. Or they're like the pig that you wash up and put him out there and he's going to be wallowing in the mud all over again. That's what the false teacher has done. Let me go back to Mark Driscoll and, and the Mars Hill podcast. And one of the things that was really sad to me as I listened to this podcast as it chronicles Mark and Mars Hill was Mark really started out loving Jesus. And he was so humble and he loved people. Man, as I listened to him in those early days, the things that he did and the way he talked, it was scary because I thought, man, this is me. This is the kind of stuff I would say. This is the kind of stuff that I, I believe. And, and, you know, and I, and I had this thought how easy it is to, to start well and not end well. Because that's, that's pictured for us in Mark's life. But his power and his influence grew. And as that happened, he left that first love and began to change. And he returned he returned at some point to the life from before. And that's really graphic, I know, but that's what he did. That brings me to Peter's last, my observation, my last observation of, of Peter's um, points about the false teachers. Here's my last observation. The false prophets and teachers will be judged and destroyed by God. They will be judged and they will be destroyed by God. Verse 1. They will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Their teachings will destroy people, churches in truth, but they themselves will also be destroyed. In verse 3, Peter says their condemnation pronounced long ago is not idle and their destruction does not sleep. Now, the Old Testament is filled with warnings where God says, I'm going to judge the false prophet. Peter's just repeating that. Here's an example from Jeremiah. I didn't write the chapter down, so forgive me. It's verse 14, whatever chapter it was. But here's what Jeremiah said. But the Lord replied, the prophets are telling lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I give them any orders to speak one word to them. The visions they talk about have not come from me. Their predictions are worthless things that they have imagined. I, the Lord, tell you what I am going to do to these prophets whom I did not send, but who speak in my name and say war and salvation will not strike this land. I will kill them in war and by starvation. The people to whom they have said these things will be killed in the, these, uh, the people to whom they have said these things will be killed in the same way. Their bodies will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem and there will be no one to bury them. This will happen uh, to all of them, including their wives, their sons, their daughters. I will make them pay for their wickedness. Now, I don't know if God is saying that in Jeremiah's day. I'm sure he's saying that to the false prophets of Jeremiah's day. But I wonder if this doesn't have a more far-reaching far word. So at the end of Isaiah, in chapter 66, we, talk, we hear about the new kingdom coming. And we know that the, the king, the Lord, he kills all of his enemies. And the righteous will go out and look at their dead bodies, the bodies of the wicked, as the worms eat them and don't die. And the fire consumes these dead people and will not be extinguished. I wonder if God's not making this in Jeremiah a prophet, a prophecy of what he plans to do at the very end of time to all, to all false prophets. 
Then Peter gives us four examples to substantiate his command that, or his word that he's going to destroy the false prophets. Here, here's his four, his four illustrations to substantiate that. He says, first is God's judgment of the angels. Verse four, for if God, this, this, is where, this is where Peter spends most of his ink, everybody. Most of his ink is going to be on this observation that God will destroy the false teacher. Here's the first, here's the first substantiation of that promise that Peter makes. He says in verse 4, For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. Now, most everybody thinks that this is talking about what happens in Genesis 6. If you go back to Genesis 6, you'll, you'll find that it says the sons of God came and they had relations, sexual relationships with the sons of men. Many people believe that that's angels coming and, and having sexual relationship with men and, and procreating uh, the Nephilim or something something different than human beings. Now, I've, I've always struggled with how can an incorporeal being, a being without a body, have any kind of physical relationship with a corporal person. Um, that being said, many, many believe this is what Peter is alluding to. Others suggest that he's alluding to an angelic rebellion against God. Whatever Peter is alluding to here, here's the point. He says, God judged those angels by confining them to a day of judgment. Now, the place that he can find them in your Bible says hell. That's probably not the best translation there because hell is used to translate a lot of different words. The actual Greek word that Peter uses there is Tartarus. Now, Tartarus is the, the deepest level of the underworld in Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, there was the underworld and then there was Tartarus, which was the lower part of the underworld where gods were locked, where the gods locked up their enemies. There's a lot of movies out there today where somebody's going into Tartarus to try to rescue the gods who've been locked up in Greek mythology. Listen to me, I don't think that Peter believes in Greek mythology. I really don't. I think he's using that term to symbolically say God is locking up the angels waiting for them, waiting for the day of judgment for them. They are confined wherever God locks them up. And he says this. Here's what Peter's point is. The reason I know that God's going to judge the false teachers is because God has locked up the angels waiting for their judgment. Here's the second thing he says. God judged the people of Noah's day, verse 5. And if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. Now here Peter introduces the idea that not only will God judge the false teacher and prophet, but he's going to protect the righteous. He protected Noah when he judged this whole unrighteous world. And in the same way, he's going to judge these unrighteous teachers. Number third example, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. This is how you can know he's going to judge the, the false prophet because he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Y'all hang in there. I know this is tedious and not very fun. Verse 6, And if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly. He says, Just like God took Sodom and Gomorrah, burned it, rained it with fire, killed and consumed and extinguished everyone, he says that's exactly what God's going to do with the ungodly one day. He reduced them to ashes and condemned them to extinction. That's an illustration of what God's going to do with uh, the false teachers one day. And number four, 
God spared Lot in that judgment. Verse 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. I'll tell you what, this is a tough passage, isn't it? Because if you know your Bible, nothing in Lot seems to have been righteous. You know, and here it tells us that he was a righteous man distressed by the immoral behavior of those around him. But um, here, here's what that means. That Lot made some really bad choices, kind of like King David. But evidently his heart, his heart had faith. And his heart, even though he made some really selfish choices, his, his heart on the inside had faith and his heart was distressed by what he saw. Now, that's not what we see outwardly. Aren't you glad that God judges the, the inward heart, not the outward externals, right? I mean, we look at Lot and we say, man, what an unrighteous man. God said, no, I could see his heart. And there was some righteousness there and God protected Lot. Jesus told the Pharisees, you look on the outside, God looks on the inside. God saw all that junk, but he also saw a heart that... Uh, that evidently had faith towards him. And so he rescued him, he says, Peter says. Then Peter draws these four illustrations to a concluding reality. And let's note them in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the, the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. So Peter kind of sums up what he's just said. He says, look, God knows how to save his people and he will save us in the judgment to come. But he's not going to save the ungodly. They will be judged and they will be destroyed. Now he, may, he follows this same kind of thread throughout all of this chapter. In verse 12, for instance, but these people like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, slandered what they do not understand. And in their destruction, they will be destroyed. They're destroying people and truth and churches and, and lives. But in their destruction, God's going to destroy them. They will be paid back with harm for harm they have done. Verse 17, in the gloom of darkness has been reserved for them. Here's the point. False prophets and teachers are destined for judgment, for judgment and, and then for destruction. Those are my five observations. If you find more here, please, please share them with me. Now, let me end with this. I want to give you an applic I want to give you four application points. This will be really quick, so don't be afraid. Uh, I got really serious. It'll be really quick. I'm just going to read them. Here's my first one. Be aware that false prophets and teachers have been around from the beginning and they're around today. Just be aware of that. Not everybody who stands up in a pulpit and says, let me tell you what God says, is actually telling you what God says. They, they need to go back to the apostles' teaching. They, they need to be ones who affirm the authority of Scripture. Here's what you need to look for, folks, when it comes to false teachers. You need to look for whether a man or a woman who's teaching, you need to look at whether or not they're standing on the truth of the apostles' teaching whether they're willing to say, yes, this is my authority. This is truth. Number two, recognize them by their rejection of biblical authority, i.e. the apostles' teaching. Man, if someone, if someone is teaching something that's contrary to biblical authority, recognize it for what it is, and, and then recognize them on the content of their character. So it's important that you look not just at what they teach, but look at their character. 
Are they driven by greed? Are they driven by lust? Are they driven, are they proud and arrogant people? Are they, oh, I can't remember my fourth one. Um, oh, are they deceivers? Do they practice deception? Those are the things you need to look for to recognize a false teacher. Number three, reject them and speak out against them as Peter did. And again, I I think there's something about how we speak as God's people that needs to be, our our speech needs to be tempered with love. So we speak the truth in love. So there's, there's a way that we speak out against false teachers, but we need to speak out just like Peter did. And we need to reject false teaching when it's, when it's false. And again, I, I point us back to the rejection of the apostles' teaching. And number four, know this, that God's judgment is certain. God's judgment is certain on every false teacher. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.